Well, hey, wiretappers, welcome back to the ongoing series on the shenanigans of the El Paso drug smuggler, Jimmy Chagra. A little recap. Jimmy Chagra was born to Lebanese immigrants in El Paso, Texas. He started his life working his parents' carpet store. They tried to get him to take it over. That was not the life as a carpet salesman. What a cliche, a Lebanese carpet merchant, you know, but it was not the life for him. And his brothers, Lee and Joe, both became lawyers. They were both on their way to becoming real well-respected in the drug world anyhow. And Lee, particularly, also known as, I think it was the Black Prince, was a famous drug lawyer by this point in time. And as best I can tell, neither of them were really involved in the drug smuggling ventures of Jimmy. They tried to maintain a little distance, although Lee was a flamboyant, degenerate gambler, and he ran through a lot of dirty money he got from smugglers. And he defended all the big time smugglers at that point in time from down there in that El Paso area and in other parts of the United States, especially the Southwest, where they knew about him. Now, their main nemesis at the time, their two main nemesis were Maximum John Wood, who was a federal magistrate judge down in El Paso that was give out draconian sentences, why they called him Maximum John. And his USA or assistant U.S. attorney was assigned to that court was a man named James Kerr. And he was a no nonsense, really good prosecutor. I've found those assistant U.S. attorneys, they get from the kind of the cream of the crop of the law school for people that want to go into any kind of public service. And they don't want to go into the silk stocking law firms and have to put in tons of hours and just read papers and do boring stuff. These are really good attorneys that want to have action. And so by this time, Jimmy's earned millions and millions from his adventure smuggling high-grade Colombian marijuana up the Atlantic coast to New England. They offload into the safe house, as we heard from our friend Kim Swidell and Folly Cove. And then they had a distribution network throughout the United States. He had a bad year in 1977. He lost two airplanes, if you remember, and a lot of dope. He threw in with another smuggler and made an enemy. This fellow smuggler's name was Henry Wallace. And Henry Wallace ends up working with the DEA to help make a case on Jimmy Chagra. And the federal law enforcement in the southwest part of the United States are circling around Jimmy Chagra and his empire. He's a flamboyant guy and everybody knows him. And once you get like that, they're going to take you. They're going to take you down. They want your money. They want the cars they want. He's building a really super expensive home up in Las Vegas, I think, by this time. He's got airplanes. And the government wants that stuff. And the guys want it. They want to nail his scalp on their wall of their office and put his picture up there on the bulletin board with uh, an, an, an X through it. So it's, got, it's a game for everybody, but it's life and death game, especially for the defendants in these cases or the bad guys, shall we say. Not so much life and death for the cops. Hey guys, Gary here. I'm interrupting your regularly scheduled program to introduce you to a new thrilling podcast called Smokescreen, Betrayal on the Bayou. Chad Scott was the DEA's golden boy, but his right-hand men were a little too interested in the product. You're a drug cop who occasionally uses drugs. Right. How do you work that out in your mind? It'll enter your mind a couple times. It didn't really with the X or the Molly. Now, method would enter my mind. You would. When they're caught dealing drugs, they flip on Chad and confess everything to the FBI. But what the feds find is a lot more complicated than drug dealing. Listen to Smokescreen, Betrayal on the Bayou, wherever you get your podcasts. James Kerr, the assistant U.S. attorney, had been working for a short period of time 
for a silk stocking law firm, and he wanted to get into the real deal, the action. And during this time, the 1970 Drug Control Act was the name of this, and the Department of Justice moved James Kerr, a really bright young guy, to El Paso to just prosecute drug conspiracies, and he found a friend in Judge William Wood. Some lawyers might even say that these two were too friendly and often saw them socializing together away from work. I saw that once. I had a case that was a civil case, but the other lawyer was real chummy with the judge. I walked in after lunch and we were having a day-long trial, and there that guy is sitting in a bench just having a merry old time with the judge. It did not give me a good feeling. And I won the case because the law was on my side and the facts. But he wouldn't give me attorney's fees, so I don't know. I don't say the guy was, he favored the other lawyer a little bit, as much as he could, I got the feeling. But both Kerr and Judge Wood hated drug dealers, they hated the drug business, and they were on a warpath to rid this country of the scourge of drug addiction. Never worked, (laughs) never has, and never did, and I think never will, but that's what we knew at the time. I was a soldier in that war on drugs, and it didn't work, but to me it was a game. These guys, it might have been more life and death. James Kerr learned that Lee Chagra had been charged in Tennessee on a conspiracy to distribute marijuana after he had defended a local smuggler up there. And he went up to Tennessee trying to see what he could gather about Lee Chagra because they wanted him too. He'd been a thorn in their side down in his courtroom. The Tennessee court, he found out, had quickly dismissed the charge after Lee Chagra asked for production of any kind of evidence in in a hearing. And once he did that, they had no real evidence, just hearsay and supposition and all that. So actually, I think what I read was the only thing they had was the unsubstantiated word of a co-defendant about a meeting at Lee Chagra's law office. So, But Kerr was wanting to look at the entire Chagra family as part of a big conspiracy. So he reviewed this case to see what he could learn. And he was convinced that Lee Chagra was the actual brains behind his brother, Jimmy. And then there was another guy, Jack Strickland, who was involved in the Ardmore bust and others. These were all whole little group of El Paso drug dealers been doing this for quite a while. Put a little known section from the drug enforcement laws about, and it was the kingpin laws and the conspiracy laws. And you can use RICO on these cases, too. So this guy was pulling out all stops. So James Kerr called a special grand jury just to investigate the conspiracy of the Chagras. And the Chagras knew by this time, word had leaked out from the courthouse that they were declaring war on them. And James Kerr was not a man to be trifled with. But November 21st, 1978, there's something happened that changed everything. It was beginning of events that, I don't know, you just sit back and listen. This is a whole series of events that happened in a short period of time. James Kerr was driving his Lincoln Continental. It was the one luxury that he permitted himself. He was the kind of guy that carried his lunch in a brown paper bag and went home after work and just didn't go out to the joints or the clubs lived in an inexpensive apartment down there in El Paso, but he bought this Lincoln Continental. He's getting in it to drive off, and as he drives off, he drops something on the floor. He leans over to get it, and all of a sudden, some gunshots rang out, and he stays down and, and stays on the floor, and then, and 
some band goes driving by real fast as he reaches his head back up and all he can see is the back of it. And his car is riddled with 30 caliber bullets and buckshot. And there was two shooters. So there was a shotgun and 30 caliber bullets would indicate to me, maybe one of those military M1 carbines or something like that. Those were kind of popular, but before the, for a bigger gun, with at least semi-automatic and saying you could easily convert them to automatic. The M1 carbine was real popular back in the 60s and 70s, all World War II surplus, and they were all over the place. Nothing struck Kerr. He was okay, but he was pretty nervous. And he had a lot of enemies, and all they looked at all the cases, and the FBI and local cops, they formed a task force, and they went, shook the trees everywhere they could, all their informants, did an area canvas. They couldn't come up with anything except for this suspect ban. No tags or anything. And of course, if it would have been stolen tags, more than likely, anyhow, nobody got a tag off of it. Just had the ban. December 28th. Now, this is just, this was November 21st. 37 days later, I counted. Lee Chagra answers a buzzer at his office. He has supposed to go on home and watch some basketball with his wife and some other people. And he said, somebody's going to come by the office, then I'll be home. So he's expecting somebody. And a young black man comes up into his office. And he thought this guy had been referred to him by somebody and wanted to talk to him about him writing a will. I'm surprised the guy, but when you're a lawyer, somebody wants a will, and they're pretty easy to do. So just knock him out a will and get some witnesses and get them to sign it in front of a notary, and you're done. But he's going to end up dead. So let's flash back just a few months before all this started in October 1978. The feds had been working on the Chagras, of course, as I said, and they found a family friend who was involved in the smuggling business. And it was a totally separate case, didn't have anything to do, it didn't look like with the rest of the Chagras, but they charged him. And they charged a man that was married to his sister, Patsy Chagra. And they were pressuring his family friend to testify anything about the Chagras and he was refusing, and they ended up giving him a 30-year hit. As a lot of these guys know, <laughs> my friend Steve St. John ends up with like a 15-year hit for something that should have been about four years because they wanted him to testify. Lee Chagra would defend his sister's husband, and he got all the charges but one dismissed. And they're continuing that ongoing legal battle. And these are ongoing, hard-fought, almost one would say vicious legal battles, and it's all in Judge Wood's courtroom. Lee Shocker was getting paranoid during this time. He was getting these people telling him the feds are focused on you, focused on your brother Joe and your brother Jimmy, and he's gambling frantically to achieve some relief. I mean, this guy used gambling like some people use alcohol, some people use drugs, some people use sports or exercise. Some people use sex. He's gambling frantically to achieve some relief from all this pressure, and he's losing more and more and more, and he really can't afford what he's losing. Actually, James Kerr, it'll prove out he was wrong. He was just really a well-paid, successful drug lawyer. He felt like people were following him. Some casinos stopped his line of credit because the feds kept coming around asking about him. And he keeps telling people he's like paranoid. He thinks people are following him. The morning of December 28, 1978, when Lee Chagra buzzed this man to come up the stairs. Previously, a guy had called and gave his secretary, Chagra's secretary, the name of David Long. And Lee had talked to the guy on the phone and about the will and that kind of a thing. And Lee's wife, it was a football, it was a Sun Bowl party. They're in the southwest part of the United States. 
And he said he'd be home in a little bit. He was in a good mood. He said he called several people. People started investigating after what's going to happen here. He talked, called several people and some other people dropped by and Lee would give them some cash. He was probably one of these lawyers that kind of act as their bank. I had a couple of people want me to do that. They'd give me money as a retainer, but yet they want to be able to get it back. <laughs> they wanted to hold their money for them. That's a common thing in some criminal world. They want somebody to hold their money and then you got it until they come and get it. Secretary would tell, say later that he kept a sack with as much as three or $400,000 in it to help pay off gambling debts when people would come in and collect. And some of these people were coming in to collect to some of his other gambling debts because he was like making bets all over the place. Somebody drinking at a bar with somebody or just run into somebody in the courthouse and say, Hey, I'll put a grand down on whatever. And the Houston Oilers and then, oh, this is winter. I'll put a grand down on the Missouri Tigers playing the Jayhawks. Friday or this Saturday, then, you know, a guy, if they lost it, and guy dropped by his office, he'd pay it. But well, that afternoon, I said the Black Prince, the Black Strikers, what they called him. He was alone in his office, and somebody buzzed for the entry. He assumed it was this David Long and wanted to get a will done. He's watching the game on TV in an apartment that he maintained there above the office, and he went ahead and buzzed the guy in. And when he came down, what other witnesses were saying was a lean, young, muscular black man going into the office. But as soon as he got inside, evidence would reveal that he just pulled a gun and no signs of a struggle. And he just shot him right away. And then when the cops got there, whoever got there first, all the file and desk doors were pulled open. And then the secretary would report that that bag of cash that he always carried around and had there was missing. Lee Chagra's funeral was attended by people from one end of the social strata to the other of Southwest Texas. He had the most reverend Sidney Metzger, Bishop Emeritus of El Paso, came out of retirement to say mass. The Texas senator named Santa Stestia Bond, that's a tongue twister, led a procession of pallbearers, a local district attorney, the local, not the federal <laughs> prosecutor, but the local district attorney and other local El Paso judges, former mayor attended, gamblers, Las Vegas gamblers, Amarillo Slim was there. If you've ever heard of him, a guy called Sailor Roberts, who I haven't heard of, I've heard of Amarillo Slim. People like that, bunch of his former clients were there. Jimmy Chagra showed up wearing a white suit and black cowboy boots and a black cowboy hat with Lee Chagra and Freedom on the headband. Like that was must have been Lee's hat or one just like his hat. He was a flamboyant guy. He was a good lawyer. Now, this is just before Judge Woods is killed. So you'd think they were connected. When I first was looking into this story, I just assumed they were connected when I first read about it. But it was crazy. The man that actually owned the building where Lee's office was, was kind of a ne'er-do-well, and they just played him, paid him rent. His name was Lou Espier. Like everybody else in and around Lee's office, he knew that he kept a bunch of cash there in the office. So they found one of the suspects. He was a soldier from nearby Fort Bliss, and he started breaking down. And he broke down on his partner, and he broke down on this Lou Espier and said, that's the guy that planned it set it up, and even supplied the weapons force. Signed a confession, and he also verified Lee Shagger's old paranoid feelings about somebody following him. He says, we have been following him around, 
named his partner, a guy named Don White. And David Wallace gets sentenced to death months later, and Wallace would eventually get his sentence committed to life. His partner, Don White, still doing six years. Lou Esper got 15 years, and they never got any of the missing money back. You never get any money back from people like that. It's long gone. But they got, they know they got dead to rights. They slipped to their lawyers to at least have some kind of a defense if they've got any left by then at all. So we got Lee Chagra's murder about a month after James Kerr is attacked and they tried to murder him. The only reason they didn't get him was just luck. So you got these two things going on right now. Jimmy Chagra is distraught over his brother's murder. He suspects everybody and nobody I read in one book. He's crazed and believes in his paranoid mind that the feds actually killed his brother Lee as revenge for the attempted murder of the assistant U.S. attorney, James Kerr. And he blames Judge Wood because he sees Wood as the kingpin of all local law enforcement, especially the federal law enforcement that are trying to take him down. He doesn't, obviously doesn't understand how those systems work. But I can see where a guy would be thinking like that because it's like that's how he lives. So James Kerr has gone back to work all during 1978. This is the latter part of 78, early 79. James Kerr continues to gather grand jury testimony about Jimmy Chagra and his drug smuggling ring. Jimmy has continued smuggling and gambling in Las Vegas, and he's just like his brother Lee. He's a huge gambler. He's building this huge, big, multi-million dollar house up there. I think I mentioned before, he's so flamboyant that he always demanded to be housed in the Sinatra suite until this house was finished and even had to turn away Sinatra one time. It was that big of a whale. I mean, those guys get a guy like that that's losing millions of dollars every year. They'll do anything for you. You, know, you just lose a few thousand, they'll give you a free hotel room or a free meal. I always think those, whenever you get free meals and free hotel rooms, those are like sucker deals. If you go back and look and see how much you lost and compared that to the cost of what they're giving you, <laughs> I think maybe you might be paying primo for that free meal and that free hotel room, but that's just my idea. Finally, February 1979, early 79, the feds arrest Jimmy Chagra and his case, of course, ends up being assigned to Maximum John Wood. So next week, we're going to discuss the murder of John Wood and the evidence, the eyewitnesses they had that day and the various suspects that the FBI documented. This is the most expensive investigation since the JFK assassination. The FBI conducted more than 30,000 interviews. They collected more than 500,000 pieces of information. The investigation, they estimated cost around $11 million. And I know out of Kansas City, they had this whole system of wiretaps and bugs up at the penitentiary because Jimmy Shagra, and well, during the investigation, he ends up up in Leavenworth because our local uh, Gary Hart was a supervisor over the one squad, over the organized crime squad. He, as an aside, he's managing the skim investigation from the Kansas City end, but on the side, he's managing the wiretaps up at Leavenworth trying to pick up information on Jimmy Chagra and getting to make a case on Judge Wood. So thanks a lot, guys. You know, I like to ride motorcycles. Look out for motorcycles when you're out there on the street. And if you have a problem with PTSD and you have been in the service, go to the VA website and get that hotline number. You can get some help there. If you got a problem with drugs or alcohol, see our friend Anthony Ruggiano. Just if you're on YouTube, you can see his hotline number or go to his website or his YouTube channel, Anthony Ruggiano. If you got a problem, get a hold of him. 
Well, he might be your counselor if you go to a treatment down in Florida where he is. That'd be cool, huh? <laughs> bragging rights there. <laughs> I don't know if there's bragging rights or not, but <laughs> get hold of him. Thanks a lot for listening, guys, and come back for the next one. And like and subscribe, as they say, and give me a review. And that's all I got to say. Thanks, guys. Got to say, thanks, guys. Got to say, thanks.